0: Good evening. This seems like the sound is clear. yeah, all right. It was really nice to meet with some of you this morning and have a sense of what's happening on the inside because sitting up here, I look out and there's all these radiant you know beautiful faces, and there's a lot going on. <laughs> On the inside, and we were commenting uh, on how settled the container feels. You know, as we come to the end of the second full day of the retreat, we feel the momentum of practice, the momentum of presence that's here. It was beautiful to come up the hill for the last sitting of the afternoon and just see so many of you, you know, walking wholeheartedly showing up in your practice and i wanted to you know when we give these dharma talks we're sharing information to help you understand the art of practice but really we're mostly sharing our love of the practice our love of the dhamma and really our confidence in this path so that you keep going <laughs> so that you continue and a lot, of, a lot of you here have sat many, many retreats. And some of you here, this is your first retreat. And I wanted to share a few words about my first retreat, because it was grueling. My first retreat, I sat uh, in southwestern Colorado. And they said to bring a pillow to sit on. So I brought a pillow from my bed. And the whole retreat, I was sitting on this folded up pillow from my bed at home. And I, I somehow didn't hear what I'm sure was said. I'm sure they said it's fine to sit in a chair, but it didn't go through to my striving mind. And, you know, I gutted it out on the, on the floor the whole time, on this pillow, and I was in so much back pain. I remember I would be, I would be sitting and just, you know, tears running down my face, throbbing, throbbing, noting aversion, burning back to the breath over and over and over again. And I think most of my thinking was about the next meal. I couldn't wait for the next meal over and over again. And I made it through that retreat more than well over 20 years ago now, I made it through that retreat. And at the end of the retreat, I called my mother and I said, I swear I'm never going to do that to myself again. It was just awful. And she said, you've done it, you've tried it on, you never have to do that again. So I was, I was uh, you know, all set and determined. And it was interesting, because I was set and determined to never do it again, but I was somehow going through the, the moments of my life with a feeling that something very, very at the core of my heart the marrow of my being had been touched. There was a feeling that something in me was resonating with a kind of truth that I'd known on some level inside, but hadn't heard and hadn't quite known how to practice or find out for myself. And not too long after that, I was in the bathtub, and this just thought came into my mind. Despite myself, the thought came into my mind, You know, I wonder if I should start planning another retreat. And I did, obviously, I'm here. It was really that, that, although the practice was hard, I knew that I was moving in the direction of truth, that I was moving in the direction that I yearned to know for myself fully. So I just wanted to say that. <laughs> to normalize, if you're struggling, it doesn't mean that something's wrong. You know, if you're struggling, there's two words that can be very helpful in practice. This, too, over and over again. This, too, nothing is outside the scope of what we can practice with and what we can bring into a field of open-hearted awareness. Tonight I'm going to speak about how we deepen our understanding of this experience we call body, the first foundation of mindfulness that's been woven through the instructions and that Philip also mentioned last night, how we understand this experience of body and what is the relationship of body to liberation, to our deepest freedom of heart. And so as I'm speaking, I invite you to actually listen to this talk through your body. What changes if you're not listening through the thinking mind, trying to capture every list and idea, but if you're listening through your body, how does it begin to feel different? Often there's a orientation of of not so much listening through the body but listening to the body you know as if the body was something a little bit separate a little bit out out there a feeling of kind of gathering information from the outside or observing observing at a distance but the body is not outside the body's not separate from who and what you are And some of you in this room love being in your bodies and you take a lot of delight when it comes to embodied awareness and for some of you 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 really don't like being in your bodies so much which which makes sense because our bodies have a lot of stories you know, some of the stories are happy stories and some of them aren't happy stories and so you know there's there can be an adaptive response where we can shift into a way of being that is somewhat distanced from the body that can be adaptive in certain situations but it's generally not adaptive in the long haul and so a lot of the the unfolding of the practice is coming down and in (laughs) any ideas that that we practice to get up and out of here that's not how it is in my experience My experience of this practice is down and in. The Buddha taught a practice of embodied awareness. And it's it's no surprise that it's hard to be incarnated in these bodies because we feel so much. A big bundle of nerves, right? Wrapped up in skin. We feel joy, and we feel heartbreak, and we can feel ecstasy. We can feel incredible, very real, real pain, confusion. And so, on one level, we're it can it can can seem like we're at the mercy of these bodies, we're at the mercy of of what goes on here. And sure, on some level, we are vulnerable within these human bodies, the, by nature of being embodied, we are vulnerable, which means we are permeable. Simultaneously, this practice is a path that leads to a peace that is available no matter what's happening in your body. You know some of you might have actually turned toward this practice because of some bodily dukkha, some suffering in the body, and so we're 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 turning toward the possibility of of a peace that 's available even when the body's uncomfortable. And the Buddha had back pain; you don't need to be free of pain to to awaken you know it's really we awaken with our hearts, our minds, our bodies starting right where you are. You now, the teaching isn't that, that you awaken through this body when you're skinnier or calmer or more relaxed or, or having exactly what you want to eat. You might just sense right now the sensations that are here that let you know you're alive. There's this idea, the concept of body, and there's just such a kaleidoscope of sensations mixing and mingling in this very moment. To frame up what we're doing, which we do over and over again on a retreat like this, we, we are harmonizing body and mind. The body and the mind can't be separated. We're really bringing awareness to the fundamental connection of body and mind that the dominant culture, uh, you know, conditions us in a way that, that, that fosters a sense of disconnection. We are returning to. We're bringing the, the body into the mind and the mind into the body because they interact in meditation. They interact. We're, we're really bringing awareness to this innate, innate connection. And as we give you these instructions to keep coming back to the body, to gather the attention, you know, and some of you might be sensing your hands resting, the pressure of your seat on the chair, the cushion. What we're doing is we're, we're developing collectedness. We're, we're bringing the body and the mind into the present moment. And when we bring the body and mind together in this way, it's quite powerful actually because when the mind's careening all over the place, that's a lot of energy. We're accustomed to it. You're accustomed to knowing, to being inside of the energy of clinging. But it's actually a lot of energy, the mind, that keeps going out because it doesn't know its own nature. So we're really using the body as a magnet for the mind. And as the attention gathers in this way, there begins to grow a force, there begins to grow a steadiness. Of collectedness of samadhi there's power in this growing steadiness and this is happening here in fact it's happening for you even if you don't think it's happening for you just by by being here and we'll move into tomorrow uh gathering the attention in breathing we've been using the body as an anchor for the attention We'll move into using breathing, which breathing is also the body. Using breathing as an anchor for the attention. And, and you know, any time we're turning the attention toward the body, there's many, many other things going on at once. right? You can feel the sensations of your hands and the experience of anger. You can feel the body standing and an arising of metta. You know, we really breathe with all of the waves of what moves through the heart in our human lives. (coughs) And it's palpable. Embodied awareness is palpable. You can feel your embodied awareness. If you're around someone with embodied awareness, you feel it. Do you have people that you've, you've been around there, you feel that from them? I think about Ajahn Suchito who's been very important in my own practice, and he walks in the room, and it's not just the fact that he's a very tall guy in robes, but there's a presence, you know, that comes from so many decades of devoting his life to these, these practices. This is from Suzuki Roshi, from the Zen world. When we practice, our mind always follows our breathing. When we inhale, air comes into the inner world. When we exhale, the air goes out to the outer world. The inner world is limitless and the outer world is also limitless. We say inner world or outer world, but actually there is just one whole world. In this limitless world, our throat is like a swinging door. The air comes in and goes out like someone passing through a swinging door. If you think, I breathe, the I is extra, there is no you to say I. What we call I is just a swinging door, which moves when we inhale. And when we exhale, it just moves, that is all. When your mind is pure and calm enough to follow this movement, there's nothing, no I, no world, no mind or body, just a swinging door. He says, so when we practice, all that exists is the movement of the breathing, but we are aware of this movement. And to be aware of the movement doesn't mean to be aware of your small sense of self. But rather of your universal nature, of your Buddha nature. So we're practicing mindfulness of the body to reveal something about the nature of mind, about the nature of heart, about the nature of suffering, and the nature of contentment. And it's not lost on me that the word, you know. Inspire, breathing in, inspire, comes from the word, it's the same Latin root, the word breath is from the, the root word spirit, breath and spirit. And I shared this quote about breathing, because we talk about breathing like it's a thing, but it's not a thing, right? All this moment to moment to moment, awareness receiving sensations, changing. There, there's no thing to gather around. That there's a momentary arising and dissolving and and some sense of continuity of that. I shared that because a lot of what you may think you're experiencing as body isn't really body. (laughs) It's a lot of what we experience are our mental constructs and our feelings about our body. So a lot of what we can live through is the ideas and constructs and images of, oh, this is body, but that's not the same thing as what Suzuki Roshi is pointing to right there. He's pointing to something much more awake and mysterious and alive than any kind of narrowed experience that's, that's a construct. We use the word mindfulness, sati, that Philip talked about last night mindfulness we're also practicing heart fullness we're practicing body fullness so you're walking meditation you can practice mindfulness you can also practice body fullness and see how that lands it's important because you know we can't reason our way into most of what we yearn for. We can't reason our way into presence. We can't reason our way into love or fulfillment. We can sense it. We can open to it. From the great poet Rumi, there is some kiss we want with our whole lives. The touch of spirit on the body. There is some kiss we want with our whole lives. The touch of spirit on the body. And this doesn't live outside of you. It lives inside of you. Here's a few facts about the body. So if you think you're your body, it might make you think twice actually. Every person has a unique tongue print. Did you know that sneezes can travel over hundred miles an hour? Did you know that if you unwound and joined DNA from all the genes of all your cells, it would fit inside of an ice cube? but the string would stretch 80 billion miles, which is from the earth to the sun and back again, 400 times. Did you know that you shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, which is about a pound and a half a year, that by the time you're 70, the average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. It means that most dust particles in this hall and in your house are made of dead skin. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells just by the end of this sentence. Whoa. I mean, really. You know, like the body you have today is not the same body you had this morning, if you even ever have it. It's remarkable, a remarkable, brilliant miracle, really, that, that, like, that we're alive sitting here, stepping into this, this mystery, really, together. So mindfulness of the body is at the heart of our tradition. Philip named last night you know, mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of postures, Mindfulness of activities, which basically means being mindful no matter what you're doing. Eating, walking, resting, getting dressed, wondering about the person sitting next to you, whatever activity it is. There's a whole teaching on anatomical parts. I will spare you the details but to reduce identification with the physical body. You know, if you have a Vipassana romance going on, just imagine the guts of the object of your attraction. It might kind of cut the wanting mind. Really of a, a, a important teaching. The elements, earth, air, water, fire. And, and, and this is all in the Patana Sutta, all in the core instructions. Maranasati, mindfulness of death, Now the actual instruction is to spend time being mindful of a corpse in decay. At the time of the Buddha, many of the the bodies were put out in the woods for other creatures to feed on. And the sutta goes through this whole, whole images of being devoured by other creatures and the bones being scattered and being bleached white. And it's not to, you know, bring up a sense of disgust. It's to for us to know that no one is exempt from this fate, to bring forth the incredible preciousness of these moments of our lives. I don't know about you, but I've, I've done a lot in my life to do a lot of retreat practice. I've never been sorry. I never know how long I'm gonna have. I know at the end of my life I will not be sorry for the time I've spent cultivating this heart. And so all of the path is a movement toward becoming more intimate, becoming more contactful with our own experience, knowing experience directly. So these, these pointings of mindfulness of the body are conceptual pointings to invite an experiential understanding, to invite, oh, like the idea of the arm is one thing, sensing the arm is something else. The idea of the belly is one thing. Sensing the belly is something else. And our job is to keep making space to arrive back in the life of the body. In the Samutta Nikaya and the Connected Discourses there's a great exchange between the Buddha and a, a deva called Rohitasa. And this is the, we don't talk as much about the Buddhist cosmology, but there are all these fantastic realms of, of existence. And in this, uh, in this passage, this, this, this deva living in another realm, Rohitasa, encounters the Buddha and, and says, when I was a human being in my last life, I had a lot of power and I had the ability to walk through the sky. And he was he said he was a skywalker. and he could walk from one side of India to the other in, in in no great time. And he made a vow that he would walk until he reached the end of the world. He's meaning reaching the end of suffering. The world word world could be replaced with the world word word dukkha. So he said he wanted he made a vow that he could walk until he reached the end of the world. But he said, even though I walked through the sky nonstop for years, I couldn't reach the end of the world. And I died on my journey before I'd reached the world's end. And the Buddha says, yes, Rohitasa, this is how it is. You cannot reach the end of the world or the end of suffering by walking. But I'll tell you this, if you don't reach the end of the world, you won't reach the end of suffering. So the end of the world is like the end of the separative consciousness, the end of of kind of a conditioned dualistic way of perceiving. And so the Buddha goes on to talk to the skywalker, And he says, this world, Rohitasa, the world, Rohitasa, the world is in this very fathom-long body. With its thoughts and perceptions in this body, there is the world, the origin of the world, there is the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. These are the Four Noble Truths, one version of them, that Philip was talking about last night. So what he's saying is that in this very, a fathom is a nautical, I think it's 1.8 meters, a nautical, a nautical distance. Um, he's saying basically in, the, in, this, in this life, this sphere of living, living experience, all that we need to know to wake up is right here. I just want to share one more thing from the suttas. I, I love I love the suttas when when I feel a resonance with some of of the um, the ancient teachings. There's a wonderful sutta about it's called bodily witness, the Kayasaki Sutta from the Numerical Discourses, the Anguttara Nikaya, and uh, Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, is speaking about what happens as we experience deeper and deeper and deeper kinds of concentration. This is a kind of absorption or jhanic concentration that's not liberative in and of itself, but it's a support for deepening understanding, deepening investigation. And he goes through each of these deepening levels of concentration. He's saying, you know, there's a case where this happens in this level of concentration. And the refrain for every one of these is, and I'm going to use the she pronoun, but, They're speaking to everyone, she, he, they. She remains touching with her body in whatever way there is an opening there. Deeper and deeper and deeper. She remains touching with her body in whatever way there is an opening there. Going all the way on to, you know, basically complete freedom, she remains touching with her body in whatever way there is an opening there like we can get really concentrated and really free touching with our body in whatever way there is an opening there. And Bhikkhu Bodhi says that basically this touching the body with the body has a more precise meaning than just personal experience. He says it could mean that there's a somatic aspect to the experience or that the awareness of the deathless occupies the same fullness of awareness. That had been occupied by the body. So it's such a misunderstanding to think that this path is in any way about transcending the body. You know, we're transcending and understanding and freeing ourselves from the identifications, the the clinging, but we touch the deathless through this body. Where else does it happen? Do you get free over there? You get free right here. There's a location of your realization. Philip was talking last night about how sometimes it's, you know, we notice something's. When we notice let's say the jaws tight, we realize, oh, I feel angry. Yeah, we might notice something going on in the body that cues us into what's going on in the mind, or sometimes, you know, we're aware that something's going on in the mind, I'm grieving, and then you realize, oh right, grief feels like this in the body. You know, they, this this non separate nature of the body and mind. And even noticing what happens when your mind wanders, when the when the attention wanders away, you know, it's it's like there's often a slight tension, a rigidity, a, uh, a holding in the breath when the mind wanders. The great teacher Goenkaji, he said, if we just pay attention to thoughts, deep inside, a part of the mind keeps on reacting. Because with the thought, there's also a sensation. And we must not miss this route. Can you relate to that? With the thought there's a sensation, we must not miss that root. So. We're such visual creatures, aren't we? Not when we say body and a lot of what co- comes up are visual images. Well, how would we experience each other if, that, if, we, if your eyes were closed? You know, if, it wasn't, if it wasn't visually? Because the teaching is that, that mindfulness of the body is not so much the image, but the actual experience, the actual living experience. And the dominant culture you know, really, really trains us to, to cut off from deep embodied experience. The dominant culture, there's messages everywhere, you know, everywhere that basically, you know, encourage a distorted body image, that encourage uh, sexualizing the body, that encourage ageism, that encourage racism, white supremacy, that encourage, you know, these kind of, um, you know, basically that you need to be thin, and muscled, and white, and tall. You know, That's a lot of what the messaging is, is that's out there. And the messaging, it's really, <laughs> it's really designed not to feel deeply <laughs> in your body, but to um, try to shape the body into something, or try to not be seen, or, or to provoke a kind of um, needing to be different, you know, or rejecting yourself. And when we take in these, these images and these messages, it tends to, over time, narrow, you know, narrow the felt sense of who of who we are. It, it doesn't exactly allow or invite a resting in the magnificence of your deepest nature. And so this is where mindfulness is a bit subversive, I think. <laughs> You know, as we, as we practice in this way, we come into touch with the, with the deeper energetic and subtle impulses that, that remind us how connected we are. You might even feel this on the retreat as you get quieter in the silence, like you can start to actually feel what's happening more, because we're not a bunch of boxes cordoned off from each other sitting here. And even in this Dharma talk, it's much more like a field, than it is that I'm in a box named Aaron up here. We, we feel one another, we sense one another. Can you imagine how it would be for you, like if, if a child was raised, or if you were raised in a way that, the, that where the message was that the body was a, is really a magnificent and sacred expression of who you are? How would that be for yourself? a magnificent, sacred expression of who you are because your body is that. It's very much that. I remember, um, I, I love to dance. I've danced a lot for from the time I was quite young. I love to dance. And I, I grew up dancing from the time I was like in kindergarten. It was a big part of my life. And going along, dancing, dancing spending a lot of time in ballet dancing, lined up you know, against the mirror, pink tights black <laughs> leotard, doing my plies and arabesques and all of those all of those things that you learn in ballet and then I remember when I, hit, when I hit puberty and I developed hips I'm okay with my hips but it was like things started to change in the world of dance for me when I got hips it's just like my dance teacher seemed to have a problem when my body changed and I, and I developed hips and I was, I was aware of what was happening and it, it happened it happened kind of slowly and quietly until one day I just woke up to it. You know, it was like moving from this great love of dance that was really for me my early experiences of meditation and samadhi were absolutely in the dance studio. When I went in there I didn't think about anything else it was actually very uh, resilience building, I would say, in my life to go in there and just focus in that way. But um, I remember it became at a certain point, I realized that like this is becoming about looking perfect. And it was like it was, the joy was completely lost. It wasn't about an authentic expression anymore. It was about presenting in a perfect, balletic way. And I I really remember the afternoon I woke up to that—that I wasn't loving it anymore. It was—it was the difference between the connection with the living body and the 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 image, you know, and the total lack of juiciness in the image. And I just stopped. I'm very grateful that as as a young woman, I had something in me that knew at that time to just stop dancing, you know, because I wasn't loving it anymore because it wasn't about the living experience. It was about the appearance and there is dukkha in that because it has to always be maintained and always be a little bit different than it actually is. Yeah, and then a few years later, three or four years later, I picked it up again, but it was never from that place again. You know, it just didn't interest me. It was from a place that was really um, full and connected. A lot of conditioning around the body, really real conditioning. Really real consequences, you know. The world meets us in different ways, depending upon kind of what the culture puts on, on the the appearance of your body. This can carry very, very, very real pain. You know, I, I move through the world as a white cisgendered heterosexual woman who can generally get around easily enough (coughs) with so much unearned privilege. It has nothing to do with how I'm showing up. It has nothing to do with the quality of my heart. So the culture puts so much on to the the appearance of the body and we live inside of that in a certain way. So this work that we do on retreat and and in practicing mindfulness is a very deep kind of decolonization that's not just personal. We're also decolonizing the dominant culture and, and the presence begins to dissolve the messages that the culture tells us about ourselves and our bodies that are not true. I mean, if you feel into it, if you take a, you know, like a step back from skin, there's awareness. If you take a step back from the shape of your body, there's awareness. There's a dimension that's not um, inherently of any color, or age, or gender. There's the space that's receiving. And the space is what receives and animates the physical and energetic body from the inside out. You know, Philip was talking last night about the rise of the Axial Age religions and a lot of brilliance in the Axial Age religions, but the shadow was kind of a projection of, of the idea of like a you You reach the Kingdom of Heaven when the body's dead, <laughs> like the projection of the God up into the sky out of the body. So a kind of it can, there can be a dimension of um, of of lifting up the rational mind, transcending the body and wanting to kind of avoid the messiness of the earth, the messiness of the body with with great implications for how we live on the earth, how we, how we um, hold indigenous peoples and indigenous wisdom. And so there's a way that this is part of how you know, systems of oppression and dominance and control function is to cut us off from the deep uh, connectedness of, of, of our bodies with earth. As I said earlier, of the, of the energetic experiences and impulses that tell us who we really are. John O'Donohue said, our bodies know that they belong. It's our minds that make our lives so homeless. Our bodies know that they belong? Does your body know that you belong to life? You belong here. Now there's a bit of a paradox, because you're not your body, but you're also not not your body, right? (laughs) You're not, not your body. I, I remember a few well, quite 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 a few years ago now. Many years ago, Ram Das came to where I live in Durango and, and we um we brought him and he was in a small a small theater. He was sitting in his wheelchair at the center of a black stage. This was after, you know, he'd had a really, really debilitating, very, very difficult stroke. And after doing some teaching and, and a meditation, he opened it up to questions from the people who were there. And one woman raised her hand and she, she said, "Ram Das, you know, how do you how do you get through it? How do you bear it? You know, you, you were this you were in, in this body that could do so much for so long. Now you're living your life in a wheelchair. You need help with basic tasks. You know, how do you?" How do you not lose faith? How do you keep going? And I will always remember the room was completely quiet and and Ram Dass responded. and His response was just so embodied, so clear, so realized. And he just said simply, because I know I'm not my body. Because I know I'm not my body. There's a sense that his freedom and his incredible capacity to love, to teach, to offer, was that it wasn't a disowning in any way of his body, but an opening to something much more vast, much more awake, much more experience. Mysterious, excuse me. Because I know I'm not my body. So it's kind of a sense of, what is this? <laughs> who Who are you? Who are we? And how do we have a relationship to the experience of body in a way that supports our deepest freedom because there's the tendency I think, to identify with the body this being me that narrows and then there's also that that kind of way place where where we can live in a subtle kind of aversion to the body you know wanting to to transcend an aversion to the the messiness of, of how it is to be to be human. Sometimes there's this idea that, you know, if we just practice enough, somehow we're going to transcend the vulnerability. If we just practice enough, somehow we'll be immune to the really tough stuff. You know, and then you hear about somebody like Ajahn Shah, incredibly realized, that that lived with Alzheimer's, you know, it's like Being mindful of the body doesn't mean that you don't get sick. (laughs) It doesn't mean that, that we're protected from the truth of the vulnerability of our existence. It does mean that we know a deeper peace and equanimity as our bodies age and make it sick and eventually, eventually we take leave of the body. really really powerful I am just going to share a few more stories um because part of of this harmonizing body and mind you know it doesn't just start with relaxing the mind sometimes we can just begin to relax and soften the micro tensions in the body and that begins to settle the mind that begins to to um bring more ease of being. I, I was w- doing some work a number of years ago at Walter Reed Medical Center. It was actually a very difficult place to be because there was so much pain and dukkha in the walls of that hospital. It was a healing place. You know, many veterans were there recovering after very difficult experiences, but there were people, many people you know, out in the yards of the hospital who had lost limbs. You know, and IED explosions and other, other tragedies. And they were trying to walk, they were trying to find their way. This is a huge, um, very, very impactful place to spend time for me. But I was doing some work teaching mindfulness and, and some nervous system <laughs> regulation work that Tuary and I did together a long time ago. Very sweet. Um, but I was, man, I'll always remember him, Colonel Hodney. He, always, he, tells, he said I could use the story, so I do. But he was a in the special forces, a, an army ranger. This huge guy—I mean, just massive—and his his body was like a brick. You know, it was like it's, this has been such a, such a well-trained body to do what he was doing. And he'd done eight tours. That's a lot. Imagine up and leaving, leaving his family, going overseas um, eight different times, eight tours, doing doing things that I'll probably never know or never understand, but I was teaching him to meditate, and he said, oh, this is so hard, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it, and it was so clear that 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 this guy was going to need another way in. You know, it was just so hard, but he looked so fierce, it was so, so hard. And I said, all right, let's do this, and just taught him this simple exercise of going through and moving his joints with full attention, with full presence, just... Moving the different joints in his body, very, very simple. And I said, "When you go home tonight, Colonel Hodney, you know, do this, and we'll check in tomorrow. And do this with your wife before you go to sleep." And he came in the next day, and it was it was like uh, he looked like a different person. I felt like I could actually feel him in a certain way. And I, I said, well, "You know what? What happened? How are you doing?" And he said, "He said I did that exercise, you know, paying attention to to these body movements." before I went to bed, and he said it was the first night I've slept all night since 9-11. You know, he hadn't been able to sleep naturally for all of these years. It was just what helped his, his mind relax was paying attention to the body in this particular way. It wasn't talking himself into it. It wasn't reasoning with himself. It was just... The power of these simple movements connecting body and mind uh, helped him rest. It was just a reminder to me that what we do on one level can seem, it seems very, very simple, but what gets freed up is, is profound, can be profound, not to lose sight of that. So when Philip spoke about he spoke about Sankara, you know there's three kinds of these formations. There's there's mental you know chitta sankara, there's sankara fabrications that come from speaking vachi sankara and then there's there's programming in the body kaya sankara. All the programming that comes from living decades of life. In, in this culture or in your culture. And what we're doing in the practice, we're creating a steadiness, a, a, um, a presence that allows this programming, that allows not just the mental formations, but also the bodily formations to, to uh, be metabolized. We're creating a larger field that, that gives space for these structures to begin to move so that we can see not just uh, through them, but beyond them, you know. So, so the path and the awakening really is embodied. No part is left out. This is a story from a, from a spiritual teacher who'd had this, uh, you know, pretty significant awakening experience and then had a, had a bout with, with cancer. And her story inspires me, she, she says, a large abdominal tumor was removed and with it all that I had clung to as certainties in my life. I quit work and I stopped teaching and I turned to anything I thought might help me change what had led to that cancer from acupuncture to depth therapy. I became humble before the body. That was 15 years ago and I can now say that it was the biggest turning point and awakening of all. I had used my body to practice. But now I had to inhabit it, respect it, love it. With all the feminine force and nurturing and understanding I had withdrawn into my spiritual life. Keeping my heart in my body became my practice and it has become glorious. Even the first awakenings into perfection and grace did not come close to showing me the joy of living in the body in the senses, in each moment. I love my life in a new way. This has become the place of freedom. So how about for you? No matter what's going on, whether, you, whether your body's like the hardest thing you deal with in your whole life, and in your practice, with present moment awareness and with continuity, of mindfulness the the body really becomes the place where we we grow our compassion we we deepen our metta we come to understand the nature of reality if it doesn't happen here where where else does it happen so we touch the deathless through the body, one breath at a time, one moment at a time. And there's there's so much power and opening to the experience of presence that really, really, you know, undoes the deep conditioning that tells us, you know, that we're that we're anything but the wonder, really, the wonder and mystery that we are. It certainly worked for the Buddha. Mindfulness of breathing took the Buddha a very, very long way. It's true for us, too. Let's take a minute or two to let the words settle. Thank you for your attention this evening, and like Philip encouraged you last night, even if you're heading to rest and not going to come to the the nine o'clock, the, excuse me, the eight forty five sitting. Um, know, drop, drop all the words, <laughs> let all the words go, <laughs> and, and just just see how it is to be here in this in this um. Mixing and mingling and teeming sensations of body. Just see how it is to be holding the experience of body and awareness in this way. It's good to go walk some.